0: Humanitarian. For more than a decade, Yves Dacor was the face of the ICRC. As the Director General, he held one of the most influential positions in the humanitarian sector. But then he left and started doing something with pop-ups and the social contracts and Harvard, and I got really curious. Because what do you actually do when you leave the center of power? This is a conversation about the social contract, what keeps us together, and which trade-offs we have to make and the ones we're willing to make. It's also a conversation about the humanitarian project and how we as individuals, as humanitarians, position ourselves vis-a-vis the industry, the people we serve, and the principles. Enjoy the conversation. I did. Yves call, welcome to True Humanitarian. Thank you. You're best known as the Director General for ICSC, where you for 10 years held that post uh, but recently you stepped down and you're now a fellow at harvard where you are also the chairperson for something called the edgeland institute which is a pop-up institute and you are the co-lead of a new initiative together with interpeace on uh, the international commission for peace is that correct yes international
1: commission for inclusive peace which is really to
0: rethink in a way the way we do peace around the world but really what I found interesting was on the, on the web page you are described as a humanitarian leader, international strategist, influencer and change maker. And when I came across uh, some of the updates on, on LinkedIn of your new work, what really struck me was two things. One, it's really interesting that a person who comes from a position of leadership uh, at one of the, the, the core humanitarian institutions now starts working with the social contract and Edgeland, what is that? And secondly, this pop-up business—that sounds very agile to me—and and how is that having worked for ICSE? But let, let's begin with EdgeLand. What is that? So, th-
1: so the idea is, is, the following one is, as I'm—it's coming from two different uh, elements. The first one is, I am deeply convinced that we are living in a time where we have to rethink the way we are living together, right? Uh, and we saw, that, we see that everywhere, right? That in a way we're living in a in a world where we're so fragmented that we are not able anymore, I would say, to agree to live together. And you see that what is right now at the core, it seems, of our way to be together is our anger. So you see competing anger. And I think that's maybe why we were so fascinated by somebody like Trump, because Trump is a champion uh, of managing that and pushing that. And I am deeply convinced that it's time to rethink uh, the rules that brings us together. So that was one of the reasons to look at the social contract and to use the entry point on a social contract, we all have a social contract. And here, in my view, it's a very narrow view, which is a, the view of what is the trade-off you're ready to do, you, your family, your community, with the so-called legitimate authority, I mean, we can discuss who they are, for your safety and your protection. Let's go back to that. And I've learned that from ICRC, from the United World. It's always good to remember that security is not a given, but they are trade-off. And what is interesting is to look at this trade-off At a time, on one hand, where you have what we call the so-called digitalization of security, all the data questions, the camera, all all what's happening around us. So safety is not managed the same way. And on the other hand, COVID-19. And if you look at that, what is rather fascinating is to see how people are reading, leading, feeling about the social contract. And we've selected a number of cities because I believe the cities are possibly one of the places where you can still test, discuss, whatever. So that is the idea. And to do that, I've worked with Harvard, and we agreed with Harvard that we would, one didn't want to do a project or mobilize the entire Harvard. So let's find a new way, a new vehicle. And we came up with the idea to have a, an institute, so you have the power of academic multidisciplinary, but we brought the pop-up energy, which means by essence, we will stop whatever the results are after four years. And I love that. I love the idea that you mobilize and you are humble enough to recognize that your contribution might be only a small one, but you are somewhat thinking about the famous theory of systems. So your contribution might impact and create a movement that's larger. And the other element of pop-up, which is so interesting, is it is radically decentralized. You have to pop up somewhere else so we selected cities to pop up in the cities so that that is but it was long but just to give you, that's the two elements
0: so the social contract and the pop-up nature of this uh, experience fantastic if, if we start with the social contract the way you describe it is is broader than the way i would normally think about humanitarian work so h- how do you see the link between your work so far in the humanitarian sector and this on one side you, you talk about edgeland so obviously. We're looking at, at marginalized communities or vulnerable communities. But is it different or is it the same as the, the humanitarian? No, it's
1: very different. Uh, I think I really have enjoyed all my years in the humanitarian, but my plan was very clear to i have learned a lot, maybe to take with me the learning, but not to do humanitarian anymore. No, 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 that's not at all the plan. And you're right. So the way I'm looking at the social contract is, is really for every single society, including here in Geneva. There's no questions. And what I'm interested is, of course, what is happening in our own society. And who is, let's take a good example, let's take Geneva, who is, in fact, um, somewhat part of the social contract. And you've seen Geneva suddenly has the COVID and discover, oh my God, there's these thousands of people that are suddenly lining up to ask for food and help and support, humanitarian aid. Oh my God, in Geneva, yes. And the question is not so much now to look at the humanitarian aid, the question is what what is happening to all of us? How come that these people are not part of a social contract? And then if there will be a new social contract, how are we describing and, and designing this new social contract? That, that, that is what I'm interested in. And of course, I'm interested to look into that in different set of contexts. We will look at Singapore, for example where the social contract is extremely explicit, right? When you come to a government and the people, they're very, very much aware on both sides of the equation of what to expect. We would also look at Beirut, for example, where the social contract is extraordinarily fragmented. So I think w- what we're trying to do is to learn a little bit how this implicit social contract is lived and understood by the people. And then once we understand that, to go one step further, to see, okay, what are the part of the contract that needs to be redrawed? with the authority or with, let's say, the community. And I think that that is what is so interesting. So to respond to your question, I'm learning from the humanitarian and I've seen my experience, in, especially in, at war, is to see how much a community, that even a very powerful community, could be destroyed. I'm still, as everybody, shocked, for example. Shock is maybe not the right word. I think I'm, I don't know what to say. I'm speechless again and again. Uh, to what I've seen, for example, in Syria. So how much a society, a very complex society, but a society can be totally destroyed, and how much, in fact, this social contract and the social fabric of the society will take decades, if not more, to just rebuild. So I think that that's interesting to also reflect about, also in our own society here. Let's reflect before, <laughs> before it's too late. So there is really something about that which which I think, uh, so um, uh, let's say, leads me to to reflect and to go a bit wider than just a humanitarian perspective
0: yeah that's really interesting and i i think you are you're spot on in um, in pinpointing how covid 19 suddenly reshaped our understanding of vulnerability and we had all of us hyper privileged people here in the geneva area stuck on the fence side of the border unable to access our education our health care and and that was a, a thought-provoking i think experience and and um, I think also created a space where we listened more than we normally do. I think, as as a world, we somehow stopped for a second and and listened more to to what actually is happening. But my question then, from inside the humanitarian sector, where I'm still stuck, is you've now gone out and looked at this social contract. What can I use you for? what How is that useful to those of us who are trying to come to terms with how this reshaping of vulnerability globally speaking? has created a, a challenge that I don't think we as humanitarians necessarily have understood yet. What, what's your message there? My message is,
1: I don't think, <laughs> let's be as humble, I don't think I have a message, but what I'm trying now to develop is a methodology that is owned by the people. And I think this is maybe one thing that the humanitarian can still learn is how do you put in place not just product or service, but you are starting to develop methodology that are then owned by the people, Right. And, and a methodology that maybe brings, this is one thing I'm really, I've, I've been always very impressed and positive about the humanitarian sectors, is the principle. Uh, and especially i am always been impressed by humanity and impartiality, right? Uh, can we bring this principle of humanity and impartiality maybe at play when it comes to politics? I found that interesting to reflect about that. Because what I see right now at, at play is a lot of politicians and groups that are very, very good at redefining who is us, who are us, you know, and normally the people who are good at that are the one who are defining smartly, who are not us, you know. <laughs> so they are excluding the migrants, they are excluding the women, they are excluding the gay, they, you know, and it's quite fascinating to see and it's very powerful and in this time of lo- a huge uncertainty, and I'm, I'm really much of, of, of the opinion that COVID-19 uh, will stay with us for a long time. And I'm not saying in terms, in terms of dramatic impact, but in terms of pandemics, I think we, we're moving to a world where the pandemic is now with us. We always had pandemics. We had, uh, and you know that very well, Ebola. We had, still we have, by the way, Ebola and HIV AIDS and SARS, but it was somewhat located to a specific population or group of population, or to a specific place. What is interesting with with COVID-19 is that for the first time, it is hitting all of us, and as you mentioned before, without differences between class and country and border. And I think this is a new world in which we are moving in quickly. Uh, if you think about the climate question and all that, it will make more pandemic coming to us. That's very clear for me. So if you th- just think about just this part of it, it will create more uncertainty. And when you go for more uncertainty, I think one of the scenarios is you are looking for uh, kind of clear rules. And I think you are going for politicians and people that are proposing you very simple solutions. I was, I was living, I'm still living in the US, and so I was living in the US during the, the, the last months of the elections. And you know, one figure who so really struck my mind, and I'm still just trying to, to, uh, to make sense of it. Um, in the elections... Um, the one people voted, if you look at the 100 county in the US that were the most affected by COVID-19, so it means concretely affected, people dying, right? Um, out of them, 68 voted for Trump. So that's kind of, you say, just, what? So there's really something interesting here. And I think one of the elements for me is, I still, even if... And you are well placed you do analysis you do fact-based analysis evidence we're living in a world where people are not willing and not being interested about that uh and in way what they are going not all but what they're going for is you know somebody who is angry like them and who somewhat redefining redefine who is us so i think to make a long story short the, the question is here, and I think what we can do and what we should learn, and I think maybe maybe including do that in the humanitarian, is to reflect what are the methodology that allows the people maybe to at least reflect and reconnect, maybe, and it takes time, within their own society to maybe find a way to uh, redesign what are their social contract. Yes, that, that could be something interesting.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting the way you frame it. And, and I fully agree because I think what we have now is not just a situation of uncertainty, but also great ambiguity in the sense that we, we don't know the answer, but we actually also don't know what the question is. So in other words, we don't have an analytical framework to come to terms with this. And, and one of the things I've been trying to think through uh, with respect to the humanitarian world is, it, it seems to me we, we have to start thinking about what we do as a narrative. And it's really difficult because the situations we deal with are so horrific many times, that how can you say that this is a story, a narrative? But if we don't come to terms with that and try to begin to understand how, how there's also a counter-narrative being spun and how we have to put focus on the stories we tell ourselves about who is vulnerable, who is not, who do we define as part of the humanitarian caseload, and who who is not there. If we don't redefine, the, I think, the relationship between evidence and uh, decision-making and action, and, and really begin to understand that, I don't think we can meet this challenge. I agree. I, agree. I One of my big biases going into this, I used to live in Zimbabwe, and so what immediately popped into my head was, oh my God, we have, uh, you know, the, the, the dreadful situation we have had for, for decades there, and... And we have uh, HIV, we have food insecurity, and now COVID. That's going to be the tipping point. I had similar thoughts about Nicaragua. Maybe, Maybe this is what will push it over the edge. And really, I was so far probably wrong. But then you had other countries like Peru or Brazil or South Africa, right next door to Zimbabwe, where suddenly you have a massive impact. And I think we really as a community have to reflect on What's the foundation for our work? What, what, where do we choose to focus? Do we choose to focus where we already are, or are we truly needs-based and able and agile to focus where vulnerability appears?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question, and I think if you look at the COVID-19, I think one of the reflections I would have if I would be in the humanitarian sectors is that we have a shift of vulnerability. That's very clear for me, and I think as always, if you look in history, when you have a shift of, of vulnerability. Um, it means that it will have also an an impact on the way compassion and resources are distributed. (laughs) That's very clear for me, right? And if you bring that on one hand and the other hand, you see that in this very uncertain and ambiguous time, um, politicians and governments are rediscovering, it's not new, but let's say confirmed—rediscovering, rediscovering the importance of containment, um, that you can somewhat show to your public, you did that already with migration and now you do that with COVID-19, you can show, no, no, it's very good to close the border. No, no, we can't contain the problem outside of the border. That will not go up. That will not go. That will stay very deeply. That is very clear. And then you can add a third factor, which is the trust factor. I think we know it's not new, but I think we know already that as a human being, I think we've moved to a world where I I like this kind of we we are much more in a world of prove it than just so the default mode is not anymore that I trust you, I don't know you. But you have to prove me that you are maybe a real humanitarian or a a very good journalist, whatever. So that's my first. But now with COVID-19, it will just be even much more complicated, right? Because you have a lot of people, uh, they want to know, uh, even before being with you, they want to know, have you been vaccinated? Yes, no. Are you, did you get it or not? Whatever. And of course, they can't ask that to you. Maybe they can. But if you are in in groups of meetings, that would be more difficult. So what they will do, they will trust, in fact, the technology, very clear. So you will see in the next six months appear technology that you would even not think are possible. I can tell you in six months' time I will not come in this building without having QR codes on my phone that will not just say yes, no, but will give a very clear indication of my track record on health, for example, which seems impossible today, but it, that will be absolutely accessible. And and you will have that. So think about this three dimension, the containment, the trust element, for example, and, and you bring that together. Uh, yes, I <laughs> I really think it will be a time where humanitar- the humanitarian, if we talk about that, sectors, and I'm sure it's already the case, will have to reflect very quickly um, what might happen to them and to their structure and to their priority and their focus uh, because i think things will change much quickly much more quickly than we we believe. six months really yeah look at the vaccine i would never never thought that they would be able to yeah of course the technology is there i, mean, I don't know if you just go to china or to israel you'll see so technology is absolutely there i mean if you go in south korea in china right now to take two examples two countries very different nature you and not just there, but you would use your phone today in entry every single building. There's no way that you enter a building without the QR code, right? And that's normal. People feel it's totally there's no question anymore because that's part of your element. You will not travel in plane uh, and the plane will be back again, or let's say without the QR code uh, over the next coming months. I have no doubt on that one. And the the question it will then raise is okay, but then who control? The list, who controls the data, how does that work? Is it democratic? No, I mean, all these kind of questions which we are all struggling. And I would argue that's also one of the interesting elements of of the institute I'm I'm trying to lead, the Digital Institute, is we want to bring these discussions also to find a way to bring the discussion to the public. Because these are discussions that are, when they happen, that are totally controlled by experts. I mean, the discussion on data, for example, is so complicated, so difficult. That, that's why coming with the angle of the social contract is a much more interesting, because then you don't have to discuss the data. You want to discuss what is important for you and what is important for us, maybe the two of us, if we have in this room and in this community. So what, what do we want to agree? And that, that is already a, a good start, much more than discuss the specifics of data, data protection.
0: Yeah, I think I agree with that. I would hope that at least in... European setting that uh, we would not be able to introduce very intrusive technologies that quickly, but I stand to be corrected. I don't
1: know. Uh, I have a feeling that may, you, might, you might be right, but let's say this technology will be part for us. And I I'm really look at COVID as a, as a new 9-11, if you want, in a sense of like 9-11, uh, the world has changed or so we have a, one incident uh, or one crisis, if you want, and then the way we look at the world has changed. 9-11, for example, the story we never never really discuss is what happened for me, 9-11, is the moment where state, took, to start with the United States of America, but then a lot of state in the world, including democratic state, without having, never telling their public, including in Europe, they decided that in terms of security, the problems and the issue was the people, each of us was not anymore groups or terrorists. What they realized was that very, a single individual could be a much more complex and dangerous issues, and, which means the moment you start to reflect about that, you change totally the way you're looking at people. And then, of course, we, I think, know only the iceberg uh, with Snowden and all that. It means then you have them to control the people, you have them to look at the technology. So it's already there. I, I would say, Lars, it's already there. My, my sense is
0: it's, it's with us. So I agree with that, but let me go. Uh, you know, this is, It's out of character for me to be optimistic, but let me try, right? Okay, so okay. so I, I see the threat. I think uh, the tech is just right down scary, and anybody who has kids would agree with that. You, when you see how intrusive it is in their world and the way that shapes their, their reality, it, it is frightening the power that these companies have. At the same time, we also have a situation where black lives matter, Resonated at a global level that I haven't seen before. You have a resurgence of the whole Me Too movement. There are some things that brings us together also, and we have a global narrative around correcting some of the the wrongs. So is is that just uh, is that just?
1: Yeah. Yes and no. So on one hand, at least my perception is I would I would say since ten years since we're just celebrating right now there so-called Arab Spring, right? And I would argue that was maybe the first really massive revolution uh, without leader. And what is interesting, including with Black Lives Matter and Me Too, whatever, it's not about leader. It's not one person who says, now let's do it like that. I, I'm quite amazed by this people movement. That's true. Uh, look at climate also. Very very impressive. That, that is very true. My problem though is so far, it, is, it has led to a certain numbers of Pressure, manifestation, maybe change of some of the practice, but that's it. Have not been able to be transformed into a societal proposal for them. Extremely difficult, right? And I think maybe because it will take time, maybe because our society as we know it are maybe going through a time of transition and it's difficult. So what I see is more and more competit- competitive uh, movement and pressure. That is maybe what it is. So you see Black Lives Matter, but at the same time in the U.S., you also see the white, uh, not just supremacist, but the white people, especially the white male, being so entrenched and so worried about that that their choice in terms of voting is exactly at the opposite. So, so what, what I see is competing movement. Competing narrative. And competing narrative, exactly. And what worries me a lot is I see people doing business out of that. The, the most striking element is... Uh, the media and the evolution of the media of the last ten years uh, uh, and that's one of the interesting places because i've I've been part of a small group of both Le Temps here in in uh, in switzerland and and I'm now part of their of the board uh, of, the, of this and it's interesting to reflect about how do you do still today a media that could be a a media that is able to to be let's say to create a common grammar and common fact that will allow to have people to have different opinion whereas today the most of the media will have really develop well are media that have developed as an echo chamber to each of the movements or to each of the of the the anger if you want that's quite amazing if you think about it right and and that where that, that where i'm slightly less optimistic than you so i see as you mentioned people revolving i think people reflecting i see people creating a dynamic but so far i've not seen anything globally that has resulted to concrete element it might come it might come uh, I see a lot of little try, experiment, but they are very local, quite interesting. Uh, but I've not seen anything really, at so far at least, let's say, at, uh, at the political level. Maybe with the one or two exceptions, and Europe is maybe an exception, so we can discuss that. But overall, I'm a little bit more concerned, let's say, for the next 10 years.
0: Okay, so I think you very convincingly outlined these global threats that are there. And, and I, by and large, agree with that analysis. Now, let's jump to the edge, right? the edge land, where, where you now operate your little pop-up shop. And, and talk us through what, what happens when you then go to the edge and, and study the social contract there. What, what does that look like? And what's the link with those global uh, trends that you have just described?
1: Let's, let's take an example, which is we're we working right now in Medellin, in Colombia. And I know that, you know, well, Colombia, and it's interesting to, op- to observe. And we selected Medellin because this is one of the places that has made a huge transition over the last 15 years when it comes to security, right? And I think what is interesting is to try to understand on the spot what are the issues. And of course, the issues are huge. And, and, and then you have to make some interventions on specific places. I think what was the, the, the interesting thing so came up was, in fact, about the young people. Very strong feeling that the young people. Younger generation. I'm talking about 15 to 25. Let's let's put it like that. Feel very uh, disempowered uh, and are don't understand. Uh, it's not a surprise, by the way. Some of the priority developed by the government, they just don't buy all these questions about the peace and the conflict, and they feel very very far away from, in fact, any social proposal. Uh, and you can see a government, and especially a municipal government, trying to grasp it, but they don't know how to engage in terms of discussions with them. They're not sure, right? Uh, and they feel that difficult. And one of the things the young people then do is they don't vote, they don't participate. As a government, what is your incentive then to bring them on? And I think what we're trying to do with them, we'll see if, if we succeed. we're trying to do is to, to understand a, how, in that case, the young people are describing what are the trade-offs they're ready to do. And really, thinking about trade off is so interesting. Um, what does that mean for them when they reflect about legitimate authority who is providing the security to them you know how does that how do they reflect about that do they agree that within their community uh the vulnerability of the other will also reinforce their own security so do they understand the notion of mutual vulnerability for them that's very interesting and then last but not least what will they then see as a change? And what is interesting with this methodology, you don't ask them only what do you want to change, which is, I want you to change. No, no. When you talk about social contract, you, you, talk, you start to talk about you, you know, you and me, and what is the relationship, what is the dynamic, and what is your contribution, what are the trade-offs, and that, what is interesting. So what, we've, what is also interesting, and here um, in terms of methodology, that's my strong convictions. You can't anymore discuss, especially if you talk about edge Especially if you talk about center and periphery, and if you really try to capture that, you can't do that. You can't do that only with the research. You have to do that with art, and you have to bring art at the beginning of the process. And that is very interesting, because then when you bring artists within the discussions, but not uh, you know, and you allow them to to develop that, the type of feedback you get is a much more interesting one, right? Uh, and we'll see how are how we able to, uh, to work around that. Uh, but that, 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 that is what we are some, somewhat uh, thing. And of course what we're trying to do is to test a methodology that works for the people and for the city. <laughs> and that, that is maybe the, the critical element.
0: And so uh, art, is that music, is it painting, what uh, theater, anything? It's the ecosystem, uh, of the, let's say, of the region
1: or, or, or the city in that case. Uh, and then we are right now also negotiating with then bigger artists. Uh, uh, maybe, you know, Magnum, the photographer, they want to, to do four years with us on, on the social contract. Uh, the value, again, is to come with a lot of different elements. I think we sh- it's exactly the, the we discussed before, is you don't come with your own uh, kind of artist or your own very narrow <laughs> perspective. You allow in a way, a dynamic to be created. The beauty though, is to do a pop-up. Pop-up is even when you do that, you come and you do that a limited intervention. You don't do that for because you can, you can stay there for 30 years. You come, you do a limited intervention and what is then interesting is then you use what is emerging also in other cities and you're comparing and then you come back again and you create this iteration that normally, normally we we'll see should help us to come with specific maybe recommendation in terms of almost a playbook if you want. And the playbook can be, that's my, can be around urban planning, could be around uh, a totally different way to look, for example, at, uh, at data management, could be a very different way to look at political party. I don't know, we'll see.
0: I guess what you're trying to find is a, is a scalable way of re-engineering the social, social contract.
1: Yes, but I'm careful with that because you have, we have to be humble because why would we intervene in Medellin? Medellin, they're, they're, it's an advance, as you know. A community, they have, They work hard around that. So I think we ha- we also have to see where our interventions make sense and where, and that's what I've learned from the humanitarian world, where bringing an international perspective makes sense to the local dynamic. That is what is interesting and, and not the contrary, right? Really.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking um, that it's so interesting, right? So I mean, how do you convey that sort of learning? I mean, do you write a book? No. Right. So how do no, you convey that? I have no that? ambition.
1: To- <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the people, I think. Well, well it's, a, it's a very, it's a fair question. And so far, we, we are just at the beginning, right? So we are still incubating, as we say nicely in Harvard, and then we'll spin off. Um, I think our our view is to do a series of interventions, both locally and globally. And in order to be able uh, to then, on every time, learn from the interaction, right? And maybe also spot the people. What I would find interesting is that the people in Medellin, some of them, will then lead the very same discussions and project in Geneva. Uh, And then we are bringing maybe also people from Nairobi that will work on specific because we start to see, oh, maybe there's really questions about, in fact, informal power, even in Geneva. Okay, who is really good at that? So being able to somewhat creating the, the on one hand a very own dynamic because it's still about the people and the legitimate authority, and we can again discuss what, where they are. But what you can do is you can provide a different perspective to help the people maybe to redraw or to re-engineer. As you mean. Maybe they Maybe not an entire social contract, but a part of a social contract, right? Let's see. We'll see. We'll see how it works. I would be a bit disappointed if I see you in three years' time and we've done only a book. I would say... That is... Yeah, don't do a book. Exactly. And there's too many books anyway. Yeah. So I'm tired with books, really.
0: It's almost more like simple rules. Simple rules.
1: Settings, right? uh, yeah. Uh, it's also uh, art. One thing I would be really excited about is, is for example, um, if you know the Biennale of, Venezia, of Venice, I would love to have the entire Arsenale. Being really uh, one, one of the Biennale being focused on the social contract and the digital surveillance, that would be lovely as an example. So I think there are moments, and I think one of the ideas would be also that we not just work locally, but we on purpose are connected with the art world. So we just are going now to the Biennale of Lagos, for example, and at the same time to the very political and security World. So I'm also planning to go, for example, to the Munich conference and security Munich conference. So that is what is interesting when you're navigating in very different environment, but then bring that together.
0: As you were speaking, I was thinking it's almost like you, you have almost a, a, a deliberate uh, urban bias, right? You've chosen uh, totally. urban, yeah. Yeah, which is almost the opposite of the humanitarian sector. Yeah. You could argue. Um, and so what are the implications for your pop proper project of, on one side, you, you, you're working with the world-class institutions here. You talk about Harvard, you talk about Magnum, you talk about Biennale, yeah. you know, that's that's A-list stuff, right? This is the best of the best. And you work with some of the most marginalized communities in urban settings. Are there any limitations to working with the big shots?
1: Let me just address two things first. First, the urban bias, just quickly about that. Um, I think the, it's a recognition that in this time of transition transition in terms of new political system new international rules i don't know we'll see where we are and right now we are in the midst of this huge competitions between different blocs, and i think we will see that over the next coming 5 to 10 years there is no questions about it cities in this kind of transition cities as a political structure and social structure are very interesting no questions it's not the exclusions of the rest especially of the rural area but the cities and let's say the o- ecosystem or you can almost say the ecological system are very interesting and we don't look at city as you know with their wall but we look at people who are coming in and out of the city and what it means but the city somewhat and this is very true in, in every culture the city have to deal with their diversity that's also so interesting there is no question this is the place where diversity is part of that. I mean, you can't just decide that it's only one part of the population who has the right to do. No, that doesn't work in a city. You have to be pragmatic. You do have to experiment. I found it very interesting. And you start to see also cities, are not new, but working together much more across the board on issues which are normally related to migration, climate, very much so. But you will see them starting to do that on issues related to security and data. I have no question about that, right? Because they will have to deal with that. They can't right now. More and more, uh, they will they will have to find. So that's also extremely interesting to come at that moment and to think about the social contract and of course the very specific element related to security. So that's just to say, city as a as a place, not an exclusion, but as an interesting place to as a lab as a lab. Let's say that is very interesting with authority that are willing because they have no choice. They have to deal with it, so they are interested to engage with you. State are not interested at all. That's far away. What are you talking about? Just stay in Harvard. it's okay. We don't, you know, it's okay. Then working with, it's interesting, what you, your description. Um, I mean, there is a risk always with, and I see that with Harvard, uh, that I know, don't know very well, and Harvard is a complex, anyway, ecosystem. Um, uh, there is always a risk that, of course, when you work with them, that they are looking at the world through their lens. There is no questions, absolutely. And in the, the lens of Harvard, I mean, the people are remarkable. I mean, just I mean, amazing. I mean, the level of people, though the structure... And the organization is very American. Um, They have a very American way to think about, for example, the risk. Uh, So you feel it. You absolutely feel it. And that is one of the reasons why I'm so attracted by the uh, pop-up nature of of my initiative. So you are incubated somewhere. And yes, you learn, and you have a lot to learn from from that place and the people. But at the same time, you already think about, you know, moving out of, of the structure and being totally decentralized. I think right now, if you want to be serious about discussing, engaging, and maybe reimagining the social contract with people, you have to decentralize your, your thinking. And I, I am coming from an organization that, in that sense, was never decentralized, right? I'm coming from ICSE. ICSC we were decentralized in a sense of we were close to the people, we, our delegation were there, but our center was very much the way we think about the world, right? Related to international humanitarian law, to the principle, very much, very clear. And for good reason, because we were, we are intervening in, uh, in, in war in, in in violence. I would argue that I'm exactly choosing the opposite, which is you have to decentralize even your thinking, your methodology and, and your power uh, and maybe reflect a structure that allows you to be challenged by, by the very same people that you are doing research about. Uh, and that, that, is, that is, I found that's very interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I asked you that, because I sometimes think that one of the key things we as humanitarians bring to the table is that we often, if you worked in the field, you have experienced a profound loss of control, yeah. right? You, you, you've, yeah. I mean, you've just had to yeah. operate in other cares.
1: That's one loss. And, and, just, and the other things we, that I think we are bringing on the table, we do understand that... Governments are not always able to provide basic solutions uh, to their people. I'm just saying that because I'm still amazed today how much the world, especially the official world, think official. Yeah. Think structure. Think government. I mean, look at everything done with the climate as an example. I'm quite amazed. I mean, the, today the money and, and it's great, if you but it's an entire financial architecture that goes through government or big business. And then you reflect, for example, Sahel. I mean, I mean, how how will that impact? I don't know the 40, 50, 60 percent of the people who are not living in area where the government has any control. I'm just, yeah. and that's still completely out of the mind of of the international community. Which quite it's quite amazing, by the way.
0: As you know, to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And and yeah, yeah. I and I, I I have been. I think we have. I mean, I've lived in Geneva for 10 years now, and. And I feel that very strongly. Right, we're sitting here in the middle of, of the humanitarian ghetto, if you want, where mm-hmm. we can see most of the the big institutions from within a mile, and and the disconnect uh, is quite profound. And I think it does limit our our way of um, of thinking about the problems. And I really I admire your step, uh, your career step away from one of the most powerful uh, positions in the sector to. To this sort of deliberate opposite, right?
1: Yeah, but I, I think that's maybe more personal. I don't know how you feel about that, but I, um, I really, I, I have, I have two beliefs or a lot of beliefs. Let's say one, two One belief was there is a moment where your uh, your ability to lead an organization is limited, right? It's, and maybe you can be, and I felt still that I was very curious, and I was, uh, curiosity was one of the indicators I was interested. I was, I think, willing to continue to lead, but I also felt that the organization starting to know me too much. So it's not just you, it's also the organization. Absolutely. And that there is a need at the, a certain moment to change. And, and again, we can have a long discussion, is it right or wrong, but there is, a, and we can discuss what it is. It was 10 years, and for me, 10 years was really, was really the maximum I could do. And I, I really think, because 10 years allows you, allowed me, not alone of course with a group of people to do major change and for me the major change was about the people about the way for example there was such a gap between the international and the nationally higher staff i mean the way we as an organization and we as a sector needs to now the word is decolonized i would not have used this word 10 years ago uh, but rethink the way uh, we are organized the way symbol power all that is distributed in organization it took, you te- it took you at least 10 years to just even start that, not just the conversation, but to change the system. For example, change the grading, change the salary. I mean, all that is a very heavy endeavor. But after 10 years or eight or whatever, I think there is time to to give space to a new generation and new people to think about it. So that's my first belief. My second belief is that's more related to me is um, we're living in a world where it's, it's useful to put yourself a little bit in danger or, or let's say, to move outside of major structure, because major structures are great, but they also they are also a way to somewhat um, protect you from the reality, right? Uh, because of course you have to think about your structure, and when you are a big structure, 90% of your energy is about the structure itself, the people, the power game, and how it works, and even if you love the structure, but it's still about that. Moving outside and being suddenly on your own put you in a very different relationship to the world, to what's happening, to even you own people. And I would argue, at least for a person, um, trying to understand what's happening is, is very useful. And maybe my third point why I'm in this journey is because I have three daughters, um, and now they've grown up. They are Julie's 25, Ines and in sNMR 22 both. And I really thought 10 years ago that shit would hit the, hit the fan when they would be adult adults and grown up, and I would have disappeared, right? And I think I realized over the last 10, maybe 5 years, that no, 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 I was wrong. Shit will hit the fan now, Mm -hmm. including when I am active, alive, and they are alive too. So I realized that it was not just about me, you know, waiting (laughs) shit to happen and they will take care of that. It was much more about us together, uh, being able to do that, and then if you really want to be able to understand what's happening and maybe propose solutions, you have to put yourself in danger. You and, and danger, um, let's be. But at least you have you have to look at the world, understand what happened, uh, test new way. You know, in a I would say in a different in a different perspective at least. Uh, Kid, and and you can do that for a while. Then you can go back. That's fine. But I think be be exposed differently. Let's say, yeah, that I'm deeply convinced about. It.
0: Yeah, that that resonates with me. And I think also what pops out in sort of the intergenerational connection that we need to have. I think we need to recognize that our kids um, live in a very different world than we lived in. Absolutely. And uh, it was interesting to hear you talk about the young people in Medellin and, and, you know, what is their incentive structure? What is What, what does their world look like? And you know what,
1: what struck me, sorry to interrupt you last, but what struck me also is, is and I've, I'm teaching also now at a university, which is super interesting, by the way, uh, and I, I make some interventions on a few things, whatever. What I'm really interested in more and more is, um, I realize that we're living in a generation where the younger generation, really, I'm talking about really the younger generation, they, they look at things and they know things that allow them not to be any more dependent from our, our wisdom. <laughs> and I found that very interesting because the, the classical wisdom would be to see this is our case study, this is what we've done, well, bad, please replicate or don't replicate. Oh, really? You know, uh, and that I found very interesting to observe which will impact a lot of us in the way we then transmit uh, or not uh, what, what we uh, rate to. And I, there's really something about that which which is really uh, interesting for me to reflect, which would mean typically it, one of the beauty of my little institute is I think uh, I'm from far the oldest. Uh, my research team is uh, 25 years old, uh, average. Um, most of them, they're 22, 23, 24. They really think the world in a different way. And this is extraordinarily challenging, but also very interesting.
0: I'm thinking you you've made this journey now you jumped down from the top of the pile and, and sort of left the echo chamber whatever you want to say when you look back at us who are still in this us meaning the humanitarian us meaning the humanitarian yeah the industry yeah what do you see and and what uh, what do you wish we would do differently
1: uh, first of all i look i look back with with a lot of gratitude which means uh, i need to recognize that for example my organization the icsc Uh, And in general, the Red Cross has been a great family. So I also feel that. I've learned a lot, really. I've met fantastic people. So I think there is something about first the people that I still feel very positive about it. Very vibrant, very interesting. A lot of smart people, uh, maybe almost too much. (laughs) And a lot of people very engaged. And I I really love that. I, I really value that enormously. Then there is a second, a second way to look into that, which is I felt already at the time, and I'm still feeling that the way the sector is, and I'm, I know we have to be careful to think about the sector, but let's say the professional sectors, professional humanitarian sectors, the way it is constructed is, is a mystery. Not so much the constructions, but it's a mystery that it still works, right? And since already years, I was just watching when is the moment what it will be de- deconstructed? what it, when it, When will it be... At the time, we were using the word uberization. I would not use it anymore. But let's where is, where is, what's happening? What is happening? And I thought, uh, I saw some signal at the time. And I think the first signal for me was in Syria, where I realized that we, the humanitarian professional sectors, we were maybe delivering, I don't know, 20, maybe 30% of the aid. I don't know if we no no know exactly. But certainly the majority of, the relief, I'm careful what I'm saying, that people were receiving were not coming from us. We're coming from the community. We're coming from the business. We're coming. And yes, this is a very different way, by the way, to relief. Maybe there is no principle here. Maybe there's a lot of other issues. But I realized, wow, we are becoming more and more um, somewhat decentralized, not anymore central to the response. And though we are still having the same discussions, the same kind of wording, the same blah, blah. And I felt, oh my God, we are moving out of... In fact, the critical uh, um, response, right? Uh, And I'm talking about us as a collective and knowing that there's a lot of difference around that. So that that was my first, and I was thinking, to be honest, that um, our somewhat, yeah, unability as a collective to improve and to respond and to rethink ourselves would be detrimental to us. And to my surprise, uh, (laughs) the sector is still there. And maybe my last element is I always thought also that there will be new competitor, so I never thought that there would be the competitor would be the same. So I was always waiting what would be the new competitor. I never thought it would be MSF or the UN or would that, that, that or the Federation of the Red Cross Red Crescent that will eat. No, that was not. I was looking at Price Cooper. I was looking at you know the risk uh, firm. I was looking at Google, and I was wondering you know who is coming. One day, and we'll make a proposal that will take over uh, uh, because we didn't see, in fact, what the people were needed and the cost and the whatever. So I'm am still struggling. Um, so what I'm to make a long story short, what I'm still looking at this sector as a sectors is I still I'm still amazed. Let's put it that way, that these sectors with this very strange Yeah, I wouldn't say that. Um, but it still somewhat exists in its own way and endeavor. And then there's a lot of, uh, lot of re- response about that, but one of, the, one of the response still is it's very related to also its donor, the way its donor are functioning. Uh, maybe there's something about being in tune not anymore with the world, but in tune with its donor, maybe, that, that, or maybe with the so-called the diplomatic kind of big things, which is still working the same, but with, which fascinates me even more. I mean, how, do, how is it possible today to be a diplomat if you reflect about the classical diplomat? I mean, if you reflect, if you see, for example, a country being fascinated and spending billions, maybe not billions, but let's say millions in their diplomatic strategy to have a seat on the Security Council, and then you say, to do what? You know, it's kind of the ultimate goal. As a, and then you say, wow, what is that? So I think you have all, also this world, which is so strange. It still works, still a lot of excitement and completely disconnected from from the reality of the world. So I think that 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 is asking me the question is more about, wow, it seems for me with a bit of a distance that um, there's really surprisingly resilient professional sectors, and I'm not sure why. And might be my last point, though, and I come back to it. I'm still amazed, by the way, that, and that's what I love with the humanitarian, uh, is not just an industry. There is also, and what I love, and maybe just an anecdote, which really for me is a lesson. I do remember I was in Chechnya at the time during the, the war in Grosny, the first war. And we were able to come in Grosny. And I was really, it was a terrible war. Really, in terms of violence, there was nobody. And I remember very, still vividly, arriving in the morning with our jibs and we didn't know what happened. And in front of us, there was uh, suddenly a truck with, uh, they just painted on the truck and then they had a flag. I think it was, yeah, you know, kind of basic wifi and they put a Red Cross it was them did it group of people and the truck was going in the you know in the street taking the the people who died taking the body very carefully these people were not humanitarian professional they were n- not at all connected to the Red Cross but they were Red Crosser you know and this is maybe what makes me still um, hopeful about not the sector as such but as the idea of humanitarian right Uh, and that comes back to humanity, impartiality. And then you see people like that, I mean, uh, in the street, doing things which are not owned by us, but at the same time very close to us. I love this ability to bring volunteers very closely to professionals, and that's very rare. There's not that many sectors, and maybe this is one of the value of the so-called sector.
0: Yeah, it's almost humanitarianism as a a virus that infects people. Yes,
1: yes, and has infected people for a long time. Yeah and will continue to do so and that is really something which by the way have kept me so much intrigued but also so much uh, connected with the idea of the red cross really in, in that sense you that people can just decide yeah that's maybe my enemy but the, the person is wounded or died and I will, I will i will i will this person deserves respect wow this is powerful
0: if the thank you so much for coming on true humanitarian thank you for all of your work with icsc and, and in the humanitarian sector And I look forward to seeing you popping up all over the place in the coming years.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. All the best to you.
0: I hope you have enjoyed this episode of Humanitarian. We're coming close to the end of season two, but still have a couple of fascinating episodes lined up for you one on China as a humanitarian actor, and we will also continue to explore the role trust plays in humanitarian action based on some work that Internews have done. So keep an eye out for those new episodes. We drop a new one every Friday at 9 o'clock Central European Time. If you like the show, then please make some noise about it. Recommend it to a friend, rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. We're not quite on TikTok yet, but uh, who knows? Finally, we always are happy to hear from you, so drop us a comment on social media or send us an email on info at trumanitarian.org and tell us what you like, what could be better, and which topics you would like us to deal with next. Have a great week. It's about the and the freedom to be, for people to choose their path in life and souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets, ask better questions, pick apart, educate, and no one is safe, we're here to build and debate, we are, we are searching for more, open up your mind beyond rich or poor, for the truth, you've been born, humanitarian,